She was a trailblazer for women film directors, but was also a talented film director in her own right. And you're listening to Three Triple R's Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. And I'm really excited to get stuck into this topic. Um, We have on the phone with us Eloise Ross, who is a co-programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque. And she's also an academic in film and cinema studies, or sometimes they call it screen studies now. Thanks for joining us, Eloise. No problem. Hi, Amy. Hello. Um, so with this uh, retrospective with Dorothy Arzner, which is currently showing, uh, we there, there were some great films shown by Arzner last week, uh, including Dance Girls Dance, which is one of her very well-known films. And obviously she's she's got many well-known uh, films. But this week in particular, there's some great Films, And I'd like to just kind of set the scene for everyone in terms of locating Dorothy Arzner and her significance as a filmmaker in Hollywood in the uh, in the 20s, 30s and early 40s. So first of all, let's just have a quick, um, I guess, understanding of of Dorothy and who she was, Um, you know. Was she? She was one of the few women film directors working in Hollywood in the studio setting at the time. What makes her particularly interesting and special? Um, well, Dorothy Arzner is really, as you said, she wasn't the only woman directing in the studio system, um, and she certainly wasn't the first. You know, there are a number before her, Lois Weber um, and Alice Blanche, uh, Guy Blanche, but she was sort of the only woman who managed to make the transition from silent pictures to sound film. Um, so she was working at Paramount as an editor, a uh, script writer and an editor in the early 1920s. And then she managed to direct some films at Paramount. Um, three or four silent pictures, I think. All of them lost now, unfortunately. Um, but she did direct Paramount's first talking picture and then had quite a significant career in the um, sort of the sound era. So she was the only woman who really managed to do that in the studio system. And she um, she actually secured a contract uh, with Paramount and, and was um, working in that studio system for quite a while before going independent. Um, but some of her films are particularly special, um, not only because they um, are directed by a woman, but there has been some um, contestation or debate around the effect of... Um, a woman's gaze as opposed to the male gaze. Um, and, and this is one of these very common topics that if you're um, doing cinema studies, the male gaze comes up quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of Dorothy Arzner's films, what is your view on what gaze exists if there is a particular gaze? Because when I watched... Um, when I watched Merrily We Go to Hell, which is her film uh, from 1932, um, to me there was a noticeable difference and I don't know if I was just watching it expecting a difference, but I do feel as if um, being a woman herself, she had some uh, greater insight into women and portrayed them in, in with more complexity um, than the stereotypes that may have been reverted to in the past. Yeah, I think that's really true. The question of a gaze, a male or female gaze, is interesting. You know, you don't want to kind of make it so essentialist to say that a a male director will always have a male gaze. 
um, dominating their film and a female director will have a female gaze. But in some senses, that is, you know, the way that we do read films. Um, I mean, I think Dorothy Asner was really interesting in that she did, I think, actively try and destabilise this idea of a male gaze um, and she would often depict certain things, you know, like or women's legs or, or women's feet dancing or, you know, looking at women's bodies. But all it was always through um, this lens of, of a woman, you know, via a woman's consciousness. She did give women, you know, more of a space on screen, more of a chance to um, kind of express themselves and to feel comfortable um, just living in society. Um, I don't think she ever... She never vilified women for seeking happiness and fulfilment through their own um, means, and I think that that was really important and really key to, to her gaze in that she created in her films. And if we're looking at some of the films that will be shown on Wednesday, tomorrow night, um, mm-hmm. there's some interesting ones in terms of um, the women protagonists because, uh, for example, in Merrily We Go to Hell, we see um, the main character who is a woman and you have to remind me of her name now. Sylvia Sydney. That's the actress, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Sylvia plays a woman who's really well off um, and she comes from old money and uh, she meets this drunk journalist and he is, um, a, you know, a typical drunk in that he, he just gets, he drinks to excess and it almost is a little bit like the Roaring Twenties in the way that um, that these characters are depicted. It seems like there's a lot of parties um, and that women are somewhat, in a very relative sense, more liberated than the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Um, with with that um, particular scenario, it's it's really talking about a marriage, and you know this woman falls in love with the journalist, but then we see um, this kind of to and fro, like a power shift or game, um, and and this woman actually suggests that we should be potentially in an open relationship, seeing as her husband, the the drunk journalist who's turned into a playwright, now wants to um, to have an affair with the, the actress of his play. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's kind of a classic, you know, it's a classic pre-code narrative where where um, everyone is sexually liberated and women are able to, to say what they want and have their own space. This was happening a lot sort of in that time. Um, but this is a particularly interesting narrative because you're right, Sylvia Sidney plays this very um, advanced and forward-thinking woman. She suggests you know, that they have a modern marriage, um, modern lives, modern marriages. And in a way, at the beginning, when she does marry this drunkard, um, it seems as though her life could be ruined, you know, that she is um, going to fall victim to this typical way of, of, you know, relations that, that marriage could sometimes inflict on people. But by sort of suggesting that they have an open marriage, it's, it's as though she's moving... Um, into an existence and identity, I think beyond the discourse of the male and beyond the discourse of the patriarchy that defines society of the time. And so it's a really bold move. There are a couple of um, moments in the film, you know, I think there's a moment where uh, the husband, played by Frederick March, comes into Sylvia Sidney's home um, and slips on a handkerchief on the floor. And I, it's just a small moment, but I think it really signifies that, that in Dorothy Arzner's um, vision um, and in her films, men are the ones who are put out and who are made uncomfortable in women's spaces, which is a real interesting switch from the, you know, the way that a lot of, of films operated at that time. 
Yeah, that is a great um, moment there. And uh, the the floor, which looks like some kind of marble, is really slippery and he nearly falls over in this mm. parlour room um, and then puts the handkerchief down on the floor so he doesn't fall over. Um, and he wasn't drunk at the time. Uh, let, no. <laughs> I have to qualify that. Um, but also, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, these modern marriages um, and, and affairs and, you know, there's a lot of um, really mature adult uh, issues that come up in this film and uh, mm. and interestingly that also in between the women um, there isn't this I guess uh, animosity between the wife and the actress who is um, having the affair with her husband you know there it's not like a, a typical um, stereotyped scenario where um, you know there would be this huge jealousy in a very um, overt fashion uh, this this other I mean this woman uh, Sylvia Sydney she's taking back control of the situation she's going on a day um, with a very uh, early Cary Grant, yeah. uh, which is really interesting to see in itself. But, you know, this is a, a whole um, new way of looking at relationships that we may not even really um, depict very often in current Hollywood films. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's what the um, kind of when the censorship code came in, it kind of put a stopper on a whole lot of explorations of relationships and marriages in this way. Um, but Dorothy Arzner, I think, um, was was really advanced. And I just want to go back to something you said about, you know, communities uh, of relationships between women, you know, because the, the wife um, and the woman who was having an affair with the husband, you're right, they didn't have an animosity towards each other. And that was something that I think can really key into what Dorothy Arzner's sympathies were, which is in creating these characters of female characters that, that really had, you know, a full range of, of emotions and of humanity. And that's something that comes up as well in Christopher Strong, which is another film that's screening tomorrow night, um, where Catherine Hepburn and the character, uh, she has an affair with a married man, um, but has this really, you know, really deep understanding with, with his wife that is played out quite interestingly. And Catherine Hepburn in this film, this was her second film, um, mm. and and Dorothy uh, Arzner actually picked Catherine out from the first film she'd done and said, this woman is perfect for that role to play, you know, a very independent woman who is driven by her passion for flying planes. Um, and and that's something that is really interesting to see is um, these non-traditional um roles or careers that that women are undertaking in Arzner films not always but certainly this is one of those those times did this kind of role for Catherine Hepburn play into that development that saw her continue in roles that were very um you know independent and and really um headstrong for want of a better word yeah, I think so. Um, that is how Catherine Hepburn is kind of seen as this independent woman who never wanted to play a role um, in which she was subjugated to, to you know, men's demands. Um, and so I think it's it's a really important role in her career. And you're right, it's the second role she had. The first was in a film called Bill of Divorcement, directed by George Cukor. Um, so this was, was really key. And I think there's, there's some commentary that says, you know... Uh, that her character, Lady Darrington, in this film was, you know, m- maybe symbolised some of some of Dorothy Arzner's own characteristics, and that she was just very independent thinking and and could 
you know, engage with, with society, but definitely had her own, you know, her own way and her own direction of going. And absolutely, you pick up there on, you know, the the clarity of vision that Dorothy Arzner had. Um, she's often described as one of the first auteurs and in the sense that she always had a great deal of control and oversight across every area of production and post-production. And in particular, given that she was such a talented editor of films, um, you know, she supervised the editing of her films, but she also had, um, you know, close relationships with the writers and she saw that, you know, it was really you know, valuable to have writers on set constantly, you know, being part of the process, not just writing the script, but then I guess being there. Um, and, and she was certainly reliant upon having their vision. But I found it interesting that she worked with a lot of female screenwriters. Um, was there any kind of reason behind this? Um, yeah, one of the most kind of significant writers she worked with was Zoe Atkins and you're right she did keep you know sort of keep them on set so that they could be consultants if there was ever any any change in dialogue or change in you know a scene direction um and I think it you know, we were talking about her her gaze being a significantly female gaze, and I think working with you know a lot of women was was very key to that because that she explored so much the the intricacies of the way that women spoke to each other and the way that women felt about each other, um, and you know the kind of loyalty of of communities of women to one another, and I feel like having having women on set with her at all times was was very important you know she already also worked with um viola lawrence who was a really famous editor at paramount and so so that's quite key to to her vision i think yeah, absolutely. And one of the things um, you mentioned, George Cukor, and I know he was um, one of the openly gay um, directors at the time in Hollywood. And Dorothy Arzner, as part of her story, she was um, fairly openly lesbian. Um, she didn't talk a lot about it, but there was, um, you know, it wasn't a secret either. And and she certainly also fashioned her identity or um, the way she appeared in a more masculine um, sense in terms of, you know, the traditions of the time. Uh, was this some um, way to fit in with the system? Um, because it seems, uh, and also an expression of personal identity, like how, what were the challenges involved for a woman um, working in Hollywood, but then also an openly um, gay or lesbian director? Yeah, it's quite interesting um, that she did indeed dress in this... I mean, she wore a lot of tailored suits and there is some commentary that perhaps she was just simply trying to, to maybe perform as a male director in some ways. But I don't know that that was necessarily the case. Um, it, it may have just been a, a personal affectation that she, that she did, in fact, like to dress that way. But there is a lot of commentary now and there's a lot of um, record of, of newspapers at the time that, that always commented on her appearance. And I think it's complicated because, you know, we see it now with, with women politicians and all that. Pe- people are always, media seem to always be asking them about what they're wearing, um, you know, and I think that, that um, Dorothy Arden was faced with that challenge at the time, and it's it is hard to say whether it was because you know she she was a lesbian or just the fact that she was a woman, and and a lot of men sort of felt put out by that. Yeah, and 
Interestingly, um, from the time, there is a, a quote that I saw um, in a book, uh, an academic book on this, and it discusses her, um, it makes a comparison for, of her to a great political leader. And I'll just read out the quote. It said, to share even one characteristic with the great Napoleon is often the aim of men, but it is the real privilege of one woman in Hollywood, namely Dorothy Arzner only woman director for Paramount. She resembles the great Corsican in her posture, that of standing with her hands clasped behind her back. In all other respects, she is feminine and dainty. It has this, you know, they're just opposing um, masculine aspects of, of Dorothy and then also um, the feminine aspects and, and there is also discussion about, you know, her soft voice. Um, in, in terms of, I guess, the, the gendered, um, you know, issues that were around at the time, Dorothy really was a standout because she was hugely successful and very prolific. Just how successful was she in the scheme of history, in terms of Hollywood history? Um, in terms of Hollywood history, she, I mean, when she had the contract at Paramount, she got a contract, I think, in 1927, and she made... 10 or maybe 11, 10 or 11 films in six years, um, which was huge for, you know, not only for being a, a woman director, but just for, for being a director at all on contract at the time. Um, and following that, she, I mean, she had a, quite a great deal of control over her pictures at Paramount, you're right. And when she left Paramount, she worked for RKO a few, a few times and she worked for MGM. She made a film with Joan Crawford at MGM called The Bride Wore Red. And I believe that she had a, quite a difficult time because she, um, you know, the, the um, studio heads at MGM didn't want her to do a lot of things, so she lost quite a bit of control. Um, she made fewer films following, um, following the, you know, her contract at Paramount and in 1943 made her last film she actually got pneumonia while she was making it and had to kind of leave it and and someone else finished finished the film and that was when she left Hollywood so she became less prolific after she had a contract which I think definitely is because she was a woman and had to sort of fight independently and prove herself at that time. And is it correct that um, she still uh, made the most number of feature films um, than any other female director in the in the studio system? Yeah, that's right. She made sixteen films in in something in sixteen years, or, or no, in about um, fifteen years, I think. So, so definitely, she she is. Um, and I feel like obviously that's like a, a huge achievement, and definitely something that we should remember her for. But she was. I think an extremely skilled filmmaker, um, editor, she had a great eye. She had these wonderful, you know, panning shots and she had a really great, she actually was the inventor of like a prototype of the, the boom mic, you know, um, in, in, uh, the, when she was making the wild party with Clara Bow, she had to kind of experiment with sound recording. So, so in addition to remembering her as, you know, this key queer female director, it's important to, to recognize that she had just a, a great eye and made some really wonderful films, you know, in the canon of, of Hollywood as a whole. Absolutely. And I mean, I guess that makes the point is that perhaps she should be thought of more often when we're talking about great directors in Hollywood. Yeah, I think so. And she, she I mean, 
she um, was sort of almost erased from Hollywood history or, or not really thought about it until this rise of feminism and film history feminism in the 1970s. And even now, you know, she's thought of less frequently, but that kind of resurgence of, of feminist history definitely assisted in bringing her back into um, awareness in film studies and in film history. But there was this huge length of time at which she was not recognised, which is perhaps why she is thought of much less often. Yeah, and I mean, she's been thought of um, somewhat more in the academia um, and there are some key texts that um, are around, you know, written about about her that are you know really fascinating but in terms of the general population's just awareness of Dorothy Arzner do you think that people um, have been aware of, of her before they've encountered um, the Cinematheque retrospective? Uh, that's possible I think that maybe a few of her films um do sort of show up here and there uh, on TV, maybe um, late night TV, but they're they're definitely not screened very frequently. Um, some of them were were restored by the UCLA Film and Television Archive a few years ago, which has given sort of more chance for people to to discuss them and to be aware of them. Um, and actually quite a few of her films were, were funded with assistance from, from Jodie Foster. And Jodie Foster, I think, has been referenced in, um, you know, in comparison to Dorothy Arzner as perhaps ha- having sort of parallel experiences in the Hollywood system. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, yeah. And in uh, maybe the book that you're referring to, one a book by Judith Main called Directed yes, by Dorothy Arzner. that's the one. Yeah, it talks through that that kind of um, J- Jodie Foster's appearance in some relation to Dorothy Arzner. But the film, I just want to point out the film. One of the film screening tomorrow night called um, Working Girls is basically impossible to see. So, as I said, some of her films have been lost. Her silent films have been lost, and that was um, you know a, something that befell quite a few silent films you know I think something like 90% of silent films made before a certain year are now lost overall but I think the fact that she was a woman meant that you know maybe the studio took a little less care with with her silent pictures at least before she you know became a hit making a film with Clara Bow um but yeah some of her films are are very difficult to see um other than you know in bootleg form and so how have you brought across these films they, um, some of them have come to us from the UCLA Film and Television Archive, um, some from BFI, and actually the, the print of Christopher Strong that's screening tomorrow night is in Australia's, or Canberra's National Film and Sound Archive, oh, which is really excellent. Yeah, but they are doing the rounds, you know, the, uh, some screened at UCLA last year, I think, and a few film festivals have been, have been having retrospectives of her work. So hopefully they will become you know, it will become easier for more people around the world to see her films in a cinema. And when the the films that we screened last week, the audience reacted so wonderfully to them, laughing and just seeming to, um, you know, in, indulge in this reverie of, of her cinema. And so I think it's really important that we watch films like this with, a, with an audience. Absolutely. Um, so Working Girls is the first uh, movie being screened. Uh, mm-hmm. Then we've got Merrily, We Go to Hell. And then also, uh, finally, Christopher Strong with Catherine Hepburn. Um, if Eloise, if people want to go along tomorrow, what do they need to do? 
so films are screened at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, um, and the Melbourne Cinematheque is a membership-based organisation, so we... Uh, people can purchase either a mini membership or an annual membership if they if they want to come along um and and see all the films tomorrow night and it's very affordable yeah checking out our website or or acme's website the australian center of the moving image um for more details and uh and on our facebook page we've linked to the event um the retrospective so that will also have the link if you want more information about those films um Thank you so much, Eloise, for joining us and just sharing your insights and passion for Dorothy Arzner and film in general. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to get a chance to to talk about Dorothy Arzner and let more people know about her. Same. (laughs) Get along. Go to the (laughs) Cinematheque tomorrow. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks so much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.